Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we open ourselves before you today, and we want you to implant your truth inside us. We want you to open our eyes to see you and your purposes and your destiny like we've never seen it before. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, it's such a joy and a privilege uh, to be here again in New Zealand. And what an exciting time it is. You know, you don't see what's happening behind stage. But I, I don't know how many people, I think, I think it's about 200 people who are helping this thing. You know, the swan goes across the stage, but underneath there's all these stagehands pedaling away. But you give them a huge round of applause. They're doing a fantastic job. <laughs> Thank you. And also these wonderful, wonderful people. What an incredible joy it's been to be led by worship in this reason. Thank you. Just amazing to be in the presence of God. And you know, last night we were hearing about... You can sit now. <laughs> last night we were hearing about uh, taking up your mat and walking away and walking out into God's purpose. And this morning we were hearing about coming home, about claiming uh, that, uh, those truths, those promises that God's given to you and coming home. And what I want to do now is to show you what it's all for. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what it's all for. Uh, because you know what? We're going to take hold of your future today. We're going to take hold of your destiny and discover your ultimate purpose. We're going to find out where you are today, who you are, and why you're here, and what you're going to do for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we're going to, you know, Jesus criticized the leaders of his day because they didn't have a clue about the signs of the times. They looked at the weather, they didn't understand it. They looked at the political situation, they couldn't interpret it. My job is to interpret the signs of the times. That is what I do for a living. I do it for very large companies. I do it for churches. I do it for um, non-profit organizations. I do it for governments. And we want to do that today. We want to interpret the signs of the times to make sense of what is happening because only then can we pray intelligently and transform our world. And as we worship, the Lord opens our eyes. That's the most wonderful thing about being in the presence of God. And you know, uh, we are called to gather. Here is a solitary worshiper. But something extraordinary happens, we are told by Jesus, when we gather together. As in the history of the Israelite people, they gathered, they gathered, they celebrated, they prayed. And Jesus says, when two or three gather together in his name, he is present in a different way than any other situation. Isn't that amazing? So when you put three and a half thousand people together, something truly extraordinary happens in a spiritual plane, in an unseen area. It's really, really important. Now, actually, blindness is really common. It's common in the church. It's common in our lives. And I find it in every single business. And we need to open our eyes today to understand what God sees. Let me give you two trivial examples of blindness in business. So, Imagine you go into one of the best restaurants in Auckland and you've had a fantastic meal, but you can't catch the waiter's attention. Put your hands up if you've had that experience. Isn't it crazy? I mean, how much does it cost for a waiter to use their eyes? Why is it that most waiters spend most of their time looking for cockroaches on the restaurant floor? I don't know. 
I know because I worked as a medical student in a restaurant that you can weave your way around the tables, you can even walk backwards carrying 14 plates and a bottle of water, and you can read every table at the speed of light. And every time you smile, you make money. Yes, champagne, ah, more wine, the bill, oh, coffee, yes, of course, sweet, uh, no. <laughs> How long does it take to tell a waiter to look up? I tell you, it takes 20 seconds, I've done it. How long does it take for the waiter to learn they double their tips every night? <laughs> a one hour. <laughs> How long to turn the whole of that restaurant from loss making into one of the best, most profitable restaurants in Auckland one night? <laughs> okay. A tiny thing, blindness. How is it that so many restaurants don't train their waiters to look? I don't know. I was in a five-star hotel the other day, an absolutely amazing hotel, but something unfortunate happened to me. You see, I woke up in the morning. I was very jet-lagged as usual. I nearly bumped into the door. I was trying to find my way in. I got myself into the shower, turned on the tap, and started to have a shower. Unfortunately, only then did I discover a problem. I had just covered myself from head to toe in hair conditioner. Now, I'm sure that you've never had such a crazy experience. Put up your hands if you too have covered yourself with hair conditioner by mistake. My goodness, you see, what is the problem? I'll tell you the problem. You see, I'm very ancient, so I need reading glasses, but I can't take them into the shower, okay? So, so of course I can't read what's on the side of the bottle. How much money would it take to use a little bit more ink and print the real thing on the bottle? No, absolutely nothing. I had an audience 800 people in a room a bit like this in Qatar recently. They were the CEOs of 800 of the largest and best-named hotels in the entire world, and one in three of them had recently had a shower in hair conditioner by mistake. <laughs> in their own hotels. <laughs> I mean, really? But it tells us, you see, it's easy to be blind. But I can find blindness in every church, we have blindness about the people in our churches. We have blindness to their giftings and abilities. We become people blind. We become blind to our own potential because we're so close to ourselves, we can't see our own future. You know, one of the most important things that you can do to a friend is to hold a mirror up to them and show them who they are in Christ and in this world and what they can do and help them to see themselves and seize their future because most of us are blind to who we can be. I learned another truth looking after people dying of cancer as I started out in my medical training. All of them were dying, all of them as soon to meet their maker. Uh, many of them would be died within a couple of weeks of me seeing them for the first time. And I learned the same truth when 30 years ago my wife and I started an AIDS foundation called Asset. And we had a program, actually a small program here in New Zealand at one point, run by Stuart and Anna-Marie Kostick, who are part of this movement. And uh, we had programs today in Zimbabwe, in Uganda, in Democratic Republic of Congo, in Nigeria, in India, in Thailand, in Russia, in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, all of them run by Christian people. All of them bring in good news to Jesus, uh, of, of Jesus Christ. All of them teaching healthy ways to live. We've seen three million young people in schools in the former Soviet bloc alone over the last few years. All of them seen by youth evangelists in secular schools in an atheistic government talking about healthy ways to live, respecting actually basically biblical values. And you know what we've learned is this. 
Life is short. Life is short. You know, life's too short to waste a single day doing things you don't believe in. Put up your hands if you think that's true. You know, I've shown this to four and a half thousand secular people at a conference in Las Vegas. I had them shouting and clapping and banging. Yes, I believe that too. And then, of course, they fall into a trap. Because I know I'm going to have a clinic immediately afterwards. There's a whole load of people who've just resigned from their jobs by Twitter or, or, because they don't believe in what they're doing. Life's too short to sell products you think are crap. I wish every bank knew that. Life is too short, my friends, to waste a single day of your life except in the centre of what God has called you to do. And you are called, my friends, to take influence. You are called to demonstrate the love of Christ and to take influence in every way you can in the entire world, whether it's a brother, as a sister, as a colleague, as a friend, as a fellow student, as someone who works as a nurse in a hospital, as someone who works in a factory making widgets, as someone who writes code for one of the largest IT companies in the world, taking influence, being good news, showing a way to live, which is different from the way around us, with values that make sense. Do you know, do you know it is impossible to teach about leadership in a business school without teaching basically the words of Jesus? Did you know that? I teach at a business school. I've taught in six or seven of the world's best business schools, and I can tell you that all leadership that works all mentoring and coaching that works is based on the teachings of Jesus. Love your customer like yourself. <laughs> treat your people well. They'll treat you well too. And by the way, don't have too large a team. Even Jesus couldn't manage with more than 12. One of them let him down. We are called to take influence, and that's my primary challenge to you today. Do you know the spheres of influence that God is calling you to? You know, there are people here today, you need to take that university course. You need to take your calling seriously. Uh, ten years, I, I, was, uh, I, was just, um, I wasn't even running a home group or anything like that. I felt God say to me that one day I would be speaking to people so often I would not have time even to prepare between one lecture or preach and another, and I should start preparing now. And I thought, well, I, I don't tell anybody about this because it seems a bit weird. But the most I've got to do is just do some Bible study, right? So I started collecting stories and jokes and other things and material and notes. And started to make, I started to make notes on the whole of the Bible from beginning to end. And still nothing's happening. Two years later, nothing happening. Three years later, nothing happening. I was having a ball. I was just learning. And I thought, I've got nothing to lose except nothing. <laughs> but I was taking the call seriously. Do you know, 10 years later, through the work of Asset, which suddenly exploded as a result of the first book I wrote, I suddenly found myself all over the world, running from one speaking engagement to another, plundering that archive that God had been building up for the last whole decade. There was one time, uh, there was a, um, it was a year before I even saw anyone with HIV, and that per first person I saw changed my entire life, because in 1987, it was as scary as having Ebola. People wouldn't touch, they wouldn't see, they didn't go. My magical colleagues wouldn't get involved. Literally, when I kept my first patient, they said, I hope you haven't come back with anyone to look after. 
I said, why is that? You'll be doing 365, 24 hours a day yourself, Dr. Dixon. Oh, thank you. That's why we started Asset as a Christian response to AIDS. Ordinary men and women doing what the National Health Service should have been doing, taking people home, wiping people's bottoms, take, collecting their drugs, walking the dog, doing whatever is necessary to show the love of Christ and the dignity of God himself. Because you know, it's easy to point fingers. It's easy to do that. But Jesus himself, when he's confronted with the woman caught right in the act of adultery, was the very last person to condemn her. It was the angry men that condemned her, but she was not condemned by Jesus. So I learned that life is short, and if life is short, we better take the influence we have wherever it is, and the influence can be the smallest things. A friend of ours, she writes notes, little notes, a little notes of encouragement. Do you know, they will stay on someone's mantelpiece for months. They will fall out of their Bibles 10 years later. I say to her, your ministry is writing little notes. She says, no, it's not. I said, it is. So every time I go around to someone's house in the church, I see on their mantelpiece a little note. As soon as they go to coffee, I go and read it because I'm a nosy person. And they're all from you. <laughs> and I know when the person gets Moo's house, they'll take that note and pop it in their Bible. And 35 years later, it'll fall out of a Bible or a drawer or some book or some old notes. And what happens? I read her note. It's not addressed to me. I read Tanya's note to someone else and I'm blessed. Isn't that crazy? I'm blessed by a little note written by her to someone else sitting on a mantelpiece I shouldn't have read because it's personal. <laughs> and that person will be, read, will be blessed again 45 years later when they find the note. Isn't that amazing? How long does it take to write a note? Two minutes. How long does it take to have influence for 45 years? Two minutes. Influence for the kingdom, my friend. You might think it's becoming an ambassador uh, to, uh, to Australia from New Zealand or something like that, and that will be the pinnacle of your career. No, my friends. Influence is about taking the opportunities to bless, encourage, show the love of God, be practical in everything we do, because God is worth it, because that's the only way that people will see the truth. Now, okay, we live in a signs of the times world, a world of robots, a world of robot cars, and yes, there's only debate about by when will most new cars in New Zealand be electric? By when will most new cars be driven by a computer? You know, most, most of the future is not about a guess. Actually, it's obvious, I can tell you, I've been predicting the future for 30 years. It's not difficult. Actually, why? Because most debates about the future are not about what's going to happen. It's obvious, like electric cars coming. <laughs> it's about timing. It's about by when. Here's another by when. So these are, these are brain cells here growing into the surface, human brain cells growing into the surface of a computer chip. And uh, these chips are bio-digital devices and can be used to transmit thoughts across the ocean uh, by wireless tech. Uh, so you don't need a mobile phone anymore. You just uh, think and send an email from one side of the earth to the other. We've been doing it between mice and rats for about 10 years now. We've got three or four or five different mice and rats, five different cages, 1,000 miles between, between them. They're solving a puzzle together. Each mouse or rat only has one piece of information. They have to cooperate to get their reward, which is a chocolate biscuit. If they cooperate by thinking and concentrating and understanding what's around them, they get a reward. This is spooky stuff. Put your hands up if you'd like a chip inside your head. Put your hands up if you're very nervous about this technology. <laughs> okay. 
You can have the best tech in the world, but the future is not dictated by technology, it's dictated by emotion. It's emotional reactions to stuff. These are signs of the times. More than 500,000 people have got chips inside their heads already. 450,000 of them, because it helps their hearing, it's connected to the auditory nerve. Another 50,000 have got it because they're paralyzed from the neck down. And actually, they are so grateful that they can sit in a wheelchair, completely paralyzed, and turn up the air conditioning. Just by thinking. They can tell the nurse that they're thirsty, they can't speak, but just by thinking. They can change the channel on the TV, just by thinking, and just by thinking, they can move their robotic arm and pick up a bottle of water. I think that's cool. I think it's amazing. It's a sign of the times. Donald Trump is a sign of the times. Whatever your views are about politics, he's a sign of a future type of politics. A future type of politics driven not by left or right, but by single issues. Single issues. Passionate groups of people who are passionate about particular issues are changing all kinds of traditional ways that we thought about politics. And thought about, think, we're thinking again about new ways of ethics and accountability and principles and integrity and what does fake news really mean. Signs of the times. We have one billion children alive today on the earth. All of them will be adults soon. Where do they live? That tells you the future of our world. One billion people have no access to safe drinking. 50% of all wealth in the entire world is owned by only one person in 100, and every single one of you is in that 1%. Every single one of you is in the 1% group that owns half of all the world's wealth, will consume half the world's resources, half the world's healthcare, and half the world's just about everything else. I'll tell you what, this is one of the greatest moral stains on our entire generation. It is a blot on the conscience of humanity. And one day when we meet the Lord in glory, he will have questions to ask us about how we responded to this fact. Because I do not believe this was part of his design for the human beings. We need to think about the signs of the times and what they mean. One billion people are on the move at the moment. They will move from mud huts, the kind of mud huts that Sheila and I visit as part of the HIV work we do in places like Uganda, from mud huts to towns and cities, from poor towns to wealthy towns, and eventually from wealthy towns, they jump across the border or they swim and sometimes drown. Not even Donald Trump can keep Mexicans out. Do you know why? All you have to do is take a ticket to Disneyland and stay. We need to understand what's happening in our world. One billion people on the move in the next 30 years. Why do I know that? Because it's been going on for the last 50 years. You don't have to be a prophet to see that. 85% of all humanity living today is living in what I would call emerging markets, the poorest parts of the world. That's why New Zealand is such an exciting place to be. You are slap bang in the middle, surrounded by emerging markets. 85%, think of it, 85% of all human beings who are breathing air are living in places which are just at the earliest stages of getting to the kind of things you take for granted. These are huge things, my friends. Here's another fact. Almost all believers in the entire universe live just there. Hardly any Christians in Europe, in proportion to the world, hardly any in New Zealand, Australia, North America, um, Japan, they're almost all in Latin America, in India, in China, 
in, in the developing parts of the world. It is extraordinary. The sheer velocity of mission is being driven not by churches in New Zealand, it's being driven by churches in India, in Thailand, in Malaysia, in Singapore. It's the most exciting thing that's happening in our world right now is this rise of church across the entire world. More people finding faith in Christ every hour of every day than ever in recorded history. Aren't you glad to be alive at this time? You know, spiritual awareness is, is, is here it's programmed into us. Did you know you are genetically programmed to believe it's actually quite difficult for a human being to be an atheist? It's, I know you might think most of them live in New Zealand, but... <laughs> and the rest in London. But actually, we're programmed to believe. We are programmed for spirituality. And as a result of these huge shifts that's happening in our world, people remain extraordinarily open. Actually, only one, about 136 million people in the entire world would call themselves atheists. Almost all the rest of humankind would say that they are very spiritual uh, and they are looking to understand more. I often say this, as this is from my own experience in the UK and in, in around the whole world in the work of asset. I, may, I say this over and over again. People may not love your God, but they sure love your values. They love your values. The values of integrity, compassion, kindness, and I'll show you statistics, that's true in New Zealand too. That's how it is that ASSET found itself in doing sex education in so many nations across the entire world. There's no one more interested in Christian values than the parents of a teenage girl who's 12 years old and she's been out till four in the morning and no one, no one has a clue where she is. And it's the fourth night she's been out and no one knows whether she's taking drugs or whether she's been sleeping around. I tell you, they're delighted to have Christian educators in the following day. They really are, into the school, to be a good influence. Why? Because the world is hungry for your influence. Even though they do not love your God, those that don't are still hungry for your influence because you are good news. Here in New Zealand, 65% of this population say they are spiritual. I'm glad of that, aren't you? <laughs> See, we often we focus on the negatives. But let's look at the positives. 33% of the country identify themselves as Christians. More than that. 20% of Kiwis say that although they're not Christians, they're very warm indeed to Christian ethics and values. and They love your values. They say, they say I wish I had your faith, but I love what you do. <laughs> Seven out of ten people in this city Respect the huge contribution that you and other churches make to the well-being of people in this community. Isn't that fantastic news? You see, the doors are wide open of respect, of interest. 35% of all people in New Zealand say that in the right circumstances, they're very open to changing their minds about their current spiritual views. You excited about that? Come on, folks, wave your hands and say, I'm excited about that. That is really important. 
And I can show you similar statistics. I was in uh, Slovakia recently with one of the churches here. You'll hear from Slovakia. Uh, give us a shout. Uh, we looked at the statistics in that nation. We looked at statistics in Scotland or in North America. You find openness across the entire world. 12% of all the people walking around the streets of Auckland, 12% of the people on the buses, 12% of people walking in the supermarkets are saying that they are very open very open to changing their views on spirituality right now. Shall, shall I tell you something else, a secret? You see, the ones who said they weren't, go back and ask them again next week. It's constantly changing. You see, things happen to people. They lose their jobs, mum dies, they get diagnosed with cancer. Um, things happen. They have dreams. So you have someone who said, no, 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 I don't believe in Christianity. Suddenly they have a dream one night. They have a dream. Oh, my word. It's like I saw angels. Or they walk into a church. Maybe they've traveled abroad. They walked into a church that's been there for a thousand years and were just overwhelmed. Tears pouring down their faces as they started to think about a thousand years of people praying in one place. But how would you know they've changed their mind? What I'm saying is, if this is true of 12% right now, you can be sure that 30%, 40%, 50% of all the people in New Zealand will be open to hearing your good news about Jesus Christ at some point in the next three or four or five years. This is really exciting. Even more exciting, 60% of all people in this wonderful country are talking about spirituality with their friends on a regular basis. Did you know that? <laughs> Actually, 75% know two or more people who are Christians. I'm glad about that. But 10% don't know any. <laughs> so I'm just saying this is wide open. You know, one of the challenges with faith is this. It's left brain, right brain. Did you know that it's your right brain that's the, the intuitive? It's where you sense the will of God. It's where, it's where the creativity happens. It's where you design buildings. It's where you write songs. It's where you are moved to tears by a sunset. It's, um, it's beyond language, it's, um, it's experience, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's intuition. It's right brain tells you, as soon as someone walks in the room for a job, you just know in two seconds flat they won't fit in the team. You just know, you just know, your intuition tells you. Right brain tells you a deal, deal that sucks. You can see it from 100 meters, this person is corrupt. You just know it. Right brain can see things, in, even atheists. It's not, I'm not talking about prophetic insight. I'm just talking about intuition, these incredible intelligence that you have. Left brain, analytical, logical, works it out. How much cash in the bank? How much money do we need each month? It makes sense. Logic, process, discipline, uh, analysis, and the rest. The thing is that we use our left brains, that's what our education system is, but our right brains is what we need for experience. You see, you can't have a spiritual experience except Actually, in, oh, all spiritual experience happens basically. It's a right brain activity. <laughs> you can't have a spiritual experience while you're doing email. Did you know that? It, it's difficult. I mean, it's, it is difficult. <laughs> it's difficult to have a spiritual experience while you're doing your family accounts or you're paying the bills. Why? Because your left brain is so engaged. Actually, it's, uh, that's why music is so important. Uh, you know, as soon as we have a piano beginning to play, our right brain is beginning to be turned on. 
It's an extraordinary thing. The power of music to influence the right brain is not just prayer does it. That's why, you know, prayer is, isolates us. It takes us up. It causes us to ignore the time and the space. We turn off the emails. We look up. We look beyond. We meditate. That's why Jesus tells us to fast. It's not just a question of losing weight. Some people think. Uh, it's not just a question of discipline. It's something that happens to you inside. When Jesus fasted for 40 days, do you know what? He was turning his left brain off. Do you know why? You can't do your family accounts when you've been fasting 28 days. Did you know that? You make mistakes. Don't drive a car when you've been fasting two weeks. You'll crash the car. You don't have enough left brain capacity to drive the car safely. When you are fasting, it turns your left brain off. It dampens it down. So your right brain can actually wake up and say, oh, oh, oh my word. Oh, I've never seen a sunset like this before in my entire life. I can hardly walk because I haven't eaten. <laughs> but my right brain is seeing for the very first time. That's what tongues is about. You can't speak in tongues through your left brain because your left brain is the language center. Tongues literally turns off your left brain. Does that make sense? Put your hands up if you had that problem. You know, you, when you first spoke in tongues, you thought, I am analyzing what I'm trying to say and it sounds silly. <laughs> so your left brain is telling you to stop. Your right brain is saying, let me free. So as you speak, you begin to see. The music is playing. You're telling your left brain to shut up. I'll come back to you later. We'll deal with the bills tomorrow. <laughs> but now, I need to be in the presence of God. Right brain is where you get genius. Right brain is where you find revelation. Put your hands up if you had a moment of extraordinary revelation. I don't know about what you need to do in the world or what, say, at night or in the shower. The shower is a common place. Put your hands if you had a moment of revelation in the shower in the morning. Why? Because your left brain gets turned off by the water. You're under the water, your left brain's turned off until you have flashes of genius. You know what? You can have flashes, I call it unintentional genius. Just something that comes to you. Revelation. If you're an atheist or a Christian, it's a moment of revelation. But I'll tell you, that is the landscape on which our Heavenly Father paints. It's the board on which He draws. It's the place you hear Him. It's the place you see. It's when you learn to cultivate your right brain. And there's this battle for your mind. You see, what does Philippians 4 tell us? Paul says this. He says, don't be anxious about anything, he says. By the way, anxiety comes from left brain. Yes, well, actually, that's easy to sort about because at least it's logical. You can deal with it. Right brain anxiety is a real problem because it's irrational. This is kind of the general, and put your hands up if you, at times you know that you felt more anxious than you should be. It's just kind of, you just feel, ah, drunk too much coffee, but never mind. Okay. <laughs> Don't be anxious. It's a command, actually, to your left brain, isn't it? It's a command to your left brain. Say, so don't be anxious. Why? But in, in every situation, by prayer and petition, left brain says that's completely illogical. Yes, that's an act of faith. With thanksgiving, present your request to God because that turns the situation around. And then the peace of God, which, get this, which transcends all left brain understanding. <laughs> it's beyond the left brain to compute. So the peace of God comes. Why? Because we start to see ourselves 
as we really are. You see, these are signs of the times that if you want to be influential, then what you're doing to be the most influential you can, you can just challenge someone's values in the classroom, you can um, uh, uh, stop gossip at work, you can do all kinds of things, or you can take people on a journey into eternity. And to do that, you need to open their eyes and help them to discover their right brain. Go on a journey with you. You know, in a city, it's difficult. It's difficult to turn the, the right brain on. In fact, Scripture tells us you'll, you'll find it almost impossible. You can't do it in a city. <laughs> what does Scripture say? Well, first thing is, Paul says, all that may be known of God lies plain before our eyes in the things that God has made. So if you want to see God, if you want to take uh, someone who's on the edge of faith or is one of these really open people in New Zealand but just can't quite get there, take them on a journey, then open their eyes and say, take them out of the city. Open their eyes. What are we going to see? I'll tell you what we're going to see. We need to go up the mountain. You know, Jesus went up the mountain. Even Jesus couldn't find his, what he needed to find in the city. He needed to go up the hill. If that's Jesus, then of course we need to do the same. We need to go up the mountain, my friends. Moses had to go up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. He could never have got it in the tents down in the valley. Uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, Elijah when goes up the hill. You know, we need to go up whatever the mountain is and get out of the city and into God's purpose and understand his revelation to us because it's, that's the place where our right brain will be most turned on. Where can I go from your spirit, Lord? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, up the hills, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and I fly from Auckland Airport to Brisbane, if I settle on the far side of the sea, I go sailing in a boat, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. You know, for me, it's water. I can go up hills, but whatever, whatever the place is that, that helps you, that's the place you need to go. For me, it's water. Water is this incredible thing. Sea is the most extraordinary sensation. My wife and I love sailing. We sail a lot. We um, enjoy sailing at night. We enjoy sailing very much at night. Sailing into the night, knowing that the, the light is falling, uh, that the stars are going to come out, and that we'll be miles and miles offshore, so far, 30, 40, 50 miles offshore that we can't even see. We can't even see as the light comes down. We can't see anything. There's not any evidence of any other human being. We can't see a ship. Uh, we can't see a star. Well, oh, stars, stars coming out. The clouds have parted. And we're in for an extraordinary night. And we'll take it turns and Sheila will sleep or I will sleep. And one of us will be awake on deck and we will find some of the most extraordinary places for us to see what God sees. So there I am in the middle of the night. I'm sitting on the stern of the boat watching the water go by. The bow's over there. I'm sitting and I'm watching and I'm looking up into the sky. Oh my. And I'm just thinking, what an extraordinary world. Now, how extraordinary it is that I could travel at the speed of light 670 miles per hour for the next 10 billion years and I would still not have escaped the edges of what God has made. Isn't that amazing? Oh my, now I'm seeing something I didn't see in the city. Four light years. Four light years traveling at the speed of light to get to the nearest star beyond our sun. 
what an amazing world you've made, Father. And when I get to that sun, I suddenly realize there's another hundred billion suns just in our Milky Way. And when I look beyond the Milky Way, I find there's 10,000, thousand, thousand, thousand other Milky Ways. And I'm looking up at the sky and trying not to lose my balance as the boat is swinging its way over the water. And I'm hearing the water sloshing by. And I'm alone and I'm absolutely in the presence of God. And I then think about children, about birth, about the mystery of life, about our own grandchildren, about a sperm fusing with an egg. And in that moment of eternity, two cells come together and form one flesh. And out of that comes a conscious, amazing, created human being, a human being made of so many cells, it's impossible to count. So many cells, how many cells? A hundred trillion cells inside my body. A hundred trillion cells. And inside every one of those cells, there's 200 trillion atoms. Oh my goodness. And every one of them perfectly arranged. Every one of those atoms doing something useful for me. You know, life itself is the most improbable event you could possibly imagine. Its appearance on our planet is extraordinary. The cosmos itself is unbelievable. And I find that when I take people to that place, it doesn't matter whether they think they're atheists or not, they are stunned by the enormity and the mystery, the size, the complexity, and the elegance of it all. You can pick up a banana. You know, a banana is 50% the same as you genetically, the same genes. You're 60% the same as the tomato. Did you know that? <laughs> I can take 60%, I can take 60% of the genes of the tomato you'll eat at lunchtime. I can put them into your brain and your brain won't tell the difference. In fact, I can take 60% of your genes and put them in a tomato. It'll taste great. No one will know. <laughs> Some of you here, I'm not going to name which ones, are 65% the same as earthworms. Actually, it gets a little bit worse. 67% the same as a mouse. You're 90% the same as a cat. And when it comes to orangutan monkeys, I can tell you that you are 99.999% the same, or rather someone is. We are wonderfully made. We are wonderfully made. You know, God said, let there be. Every language, all the same creatures, all the creatures in the world are written with the same language of life. It's the same computer language. It's the same language. That's why your genes work in every other creature. And we're learning from animals that don't get old. Animals that live for 200 years or 400 years and they don't show any sign of getting old. We're on the edge of extraordinary science. This is science of the times. And this is what I was musing on at night when I was sitting right here on the bow watching the uh, waves go by and listening to my own thoughts in the presence of God. And so aware that there's life beyond life. You know, how can it be that we just think that somehow we're just a bag of biodata or a cluster of stars in space? Jeremiah 1 verse 6 tells us, and 1 verse 5 says, I knew you. You were known by God before you were even conceived. Isn't that an amazing thing? These are mysteries, my friends. And there's no human language on earth that will ever convey to you in your human time-space brain 
what the eternal absoluteness of God is actually like. One day we will see him face to face, but today we only see in part, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13. So there I was, captivated by this extraordinary sense of the presence of God. And suddenly I'm hearing a noise. Hey, I'll tell you, noises are really bad news on a boat. They scare the living daylights out of me, especially at night. I'm looking up at the torch, up at the top of the mast. I'm thinking I'm going to have to crawl along. I remember the, the boat's bouncing on the waves. I'm getting thrust around. I'm strapped on now because actually I'm not allowed to go forward from this point without waking Sheila up because otherwise I'd be overboard and the boat will sail away for 100 miles. I'm shining up. I can't see anything broken. Hey, I can't even work out which side of the boat it's coming from. I'm going from one side to the other. I think it's coming from the water, but I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm starting to get scared. There are strange people around that like to hijack boats <laughs> in the night. I got my torch out. I'm looking at the side of the boat. And suddenly, I see it. Dolphins. Dolphins. <laughs> I think, wake up. Hello. Come on, take a photo. Dolphins, the most amazing things. You can bring the light up. Dolphins, the most amazing creatures. They love boats. They love to communicate. Dolphins are social creatures. They have a moral code. They have a social order and a conscience. They have strategies. They work together and they have plans. There are lots of occasions when uh, boats have been warned. So here's the boat. Suddenly see dolphins zooming past. Rushing, I'm rushing to the front of the bow with my, my camera. I'm trying to take them. They go zooming past. They're suddenly left. They've disappeared. Don't know where they're gone. I'm looking down the side. Suddenly they're back again. Back in the, oh, they're rushing to rushing the front of the They go off 100 meters. Suddenly they go left. They disappeared. After five times, someone said to the skipper, You don't think, do you? They're trying to tell us something. Oh, no, mate. <laughs> We've got 10,000 meters of water underneath the hull. Well, why don't we look again? They looked again. They found they were heading for a reef. Those dolphins knew. They communicated, they recognised were living creatures, they were sounding an alarm, they had developed a strategy, they'd worked out the plan, they communicated to each other, rounding people up, and were determined to prevent a catastrophe, and that's kind of cool. These are extraordinary creatures, they have language. We've discovered that dolphins have a thousand word language. Isn't that amazing? So you look at, the, look at what God has made, but here's the most extraordinary thing, we're trying to learn these words. Actually, you can almost read a newspaper with a thousand words. That's a lot of words. I'll tell you, if you were paralyzed from the neck down and you could only point to a thousand words, you'd have quite a lot to say. Dolphins have got quite a lot to say to us, but we don't know what they're trying to say. So imagine a human being trying to find out. <laughs> now, just go with this. I can see some of you turning off at this point. Just stay with this for the moment. Because here is a profound truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just imagine someone who, I don't know, is dressed as a dolphin, he's learnt the dolphin clicks, he's trying to engage with dolphins, trying to learn the language, has actually entered their world. In fact, he's been living in dolphin land for quite a while. They don't really know where he came from. 
they kind of think he's completely dolphin, but they think he's completely human as well. And humans, I often wonder what the dolphins think of us. What do they think of us? Do they think that I'm some angel? I've got super dolphin powers. Not superhuman powers, super dolphin powers. I've got machines, I've got technology. I live in a world they can only imagine. They come up, they jump into the air for two seconds, they see this amazing world and they disappear under the water again. They get glimpses of a world they don't understand. They try to communicate what they've seen to each other, which makes all the other dolphins excited to go and have a look at Patrick Dixon's boat. But they don't fully understand what they're seeing. It's a bit of a mystery. Can you imagine someone from human land entering dolphin land and trying to teach dolphins about life upstairs using dolphin language and some of the dolphins saying nah I don't believe it I don't believe it he says there's planes that they can float above the air I don't believe it I don't believe it but actually how is the dolphin arrogant enough to think that a dolphin can tell a human being what he can or can't do. I'm fed up of people telling me, oh, God can't be like that. So why? How do you know? <laughs> Who are you to say what God is like or not? I say, I can't understand that. I say, I'm so glad that you can't. I don't think dolphins understand human world either, but it still exists. You see, we're in a very dangerous place when people say that they reject things they won't understand. I also say we as Christians are in a very dangerous place if we think we understand it all. If you think you can understand eternity with only a thousand words in your dolphin vocabulary, you're very much mistaken and you've simply reduced the whole of God and heaven itself to something that's even smaller than your brain. So here's the dolphin man <laughs> who's trying with his wetsuit on to teach dolphins about life upstairs. And this dolphin man gets very respected. They quickly think he's a bit of a god because they think he's the biggest teacher and the best teacher that there's ever been. He's got astonishing wisdom and he's doing miracles all over the place. He seems to have amazing underwater powers that no dolphin has ever seen before. And these powers are validating his story. They think, well, actually, it's probably true. We've seen him do so many miracles under the water. Perhaps he can fly. You can see where I'm going with this. So what is the story of Jesus? The story of Jesus is God made flesh. The story of Jesus is God rescuing us. The story of Jesus is God becoming man, becoming man, fully man, fully God, entering our world, even although we've only got a thousand word vocabulary. I don't know how frustrating it must have been for Jesus to try and explain to human beings in human words what God is actually like. So we say we don't really understand heaven or what heaven will be. Of course you don't. How could you understand heaven until we get there one day, which we will. But here's the radical wisdom, the most radical wisdom the world has ever known, based on the command to love, with facts about the life above, validated by miracles. Why? Because in our time-space world, Jesus constantly and consistently screwed up the laws of physics and chemistry, threw them away and reinvented them to do miracles inside humans' bodies, which no scientist can explain. And the greatest miracle, of course, well, I'll come to that. But Paul talks about being swept up in a moment into a fifth dimension. He says, I've been caught up into a third heaven. Uh, he says, I saw things too wonderful for words. So in that moment, like the dolphin, Paul managed to jump out of his time-space world under the ocean and he saw a glimpse of something quite extraordinary which he could never communicate to you in words. These are mysteries, my friends. These mysteries are the truth about our 
world. You see, you will touch the hand of God, but you will not see Him face to face until you see Him in glory. What is your ultimate destiny, your future, my friends? I'm a futurist. I'm telling you, your future, one day you will see our Heavenly Father face to face. Isn't that an extraordinary thing? One day your time-space world will disappear. One day you'll be with Him in eternity. And of course, in this time-space world, we see glimpses of this in revelations that come to us in prophetic ways, in the miracles that happen today as they happened in the time of Jesus, in the miracle of the resurrection itself, when Jesus, fully crucified, fully human, fully God, fully extinguished in terms of life, is resurrected again, comes back to life as he prophesied on the third day and ascends into heaven, violating every single rule of physics and chemistry and biology put together. The most extraordinary thing that happens. And then we have the personal testimonies of people today, people inside this very room with a daily sense of the presence of God, with that sense of being plugged in, the most extraordinary thing is to have this broadband connection between yourself and God himself. Isn't that amazing? To be able to plug in and to go online and have this line of communication directly into the depths of your spirit. Isn't that extraordinary? And people often say to me who became Christians, you know, and a lot of people became Christians last night, I just wish I'd done this before. I wish someone had told me before. You know, I'm 34 now. I just wish I'd found faith in Christ when I was 15 because so much of my life would have been different. Put your hands up if you heard someone say that to you. I just wish I'd found faith. You know, this is your purpose. Your purpose is to influence, is to take influence, to win the hearts and minds of people. Do you know the reason why Paul, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard. You know, Paul was put in prison by, by, by God. Do you know why? Because it was the only way for him to take influence. So Paul's so frustrated with his situation. He's saying, I'm so frustrated. I've got all these concerns, all these churches. I can't do anything to help them. I've locked up in the cell. I haven't even got a mobile. And God says to him to write. And he just, he just speaks out truths and Timothy and others are writing them down. And Paul is the first time warp apostle, the first digital apostle. And Paul's words are blessing us today, 2,000 years later. Why? All because God put him in a cell, threw away the key, and refused to answer any of his prayers. <laughs> Why? Because it would have neutered his influence. And Paul's primary mission was to take influence, not just over those churches, but to take influence over your life, your children's lives, and to take influence over generations, for a hundred generations to come until the Lord Jesus returns, all because the Lord refused to answer his prayers and just gave him a pen and said, right? So we sometimes have a view about how we should take influence. You know, that's my calling. No, actually, we need someone to help us hold the mirror up and say, actually, your influence is writing the note like Tanya. Your influence is writing the letter like Paul. Your influence is in a different place. Your influence is to stay in the job that you're in because I've got a special purpose for you there. And to all who believed in his name, he gave the power to become the children of God. Isn't that the most amazing revelation of all? The children of God, children. Now we've been to the outer cosmos and we've seen all these billions and trillions of stars. Children of the maker of all of that. Children of the God who made these trillions of cells and these trillions of atoms and these hundreds of billions of organizational miracles. That is life itself. And then I come back to your ultimate journey, your ultimate purpose and your ultimate destiny. And Paul says this. He says, I consider it all garbage for the sake of 
being in Christ and being found in Him, not having righteousness of my own, but through faith. I want to know Christ, he says. I want to be like Him in His death. This is Paul's destiny. Paul wasn't that interested in what he was doing on earth. He was a man on a mission. And he knew where he was going. He knew his purpose was to influence, but his destiny was eternity. And he says, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead, he says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Jesus Christ didn't take hold of you to give you a new job. Oh, God deliver us. Go up the mountain. <laughs> the job you're doing in Adelaide or Auckland or wherever you live, yeah, it's important. It's nothing compared to eternity. <laughs> I'm forgetting what's behind and straining forward to what's ahead. I press towards the goal to do what? To win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ. I remember a good friend of ours, uh, it was called Elsie. She was like an adopted great aunt and she developed cancer one day and she was the most amazing militant manic evangelist. She would evangelize 15 people on the bus stop in 10 minutes. She's just the most amazing person. She came to this seminar on evangelism to know more about how to do it from a bunch of 20-year-olds. I don't know why, but she was very humble. She knew more about evangelism than anyone. But she was basically dying. People had more or less opened her up, closed her, and told her that, you know, she was on her way. And uh, I remember at the end of the meeting, a whole load of people said, look, let's pray for Elsie. So we gathered Elsie around, and people started praying over her, and it was noisy. You could hear the building shake. I mean, we were noisy. We were praying. We were casting things out. We were praying, laying hands on everything. In the name of Jesus, be And suddenly she began to cry. And she cried, and she wailed, and we wailed. Oh, the Holy Spirit's here. Pray more. <laughs> and then we heard her voice. And you know what she said? She said, my dear friends, I love you, but I love Lord Jesus more. She says, Why? Can't you let me go? <laughs> she said, I've lived my life. Every night I get down on my knees and I say, I thank you, Father, for another day that I've been able to be an influence for you. But tonight, Lord, if it pleases you, let me pass on. <laughs> And then I wake up in the morning. <laughs> Still here. <laughs> Hallelujah. There's work to be done. There's work to be done. There's a seminar to go to. There's more people at the bus stop to talk to. And I will continue to do this until the Lord takes me. Do you know what? We were, I realised we were praying out of fear. She was praying out of Faith, open your eyes, my friends. Sometimes I think in the Auckland, uh, in, in the city, in the, in the freneticism, in the emails and the rest of it, we've, we can lose perspective. And what I'm saying is let's open our eyes and see what God has for you, to take hold of your purpose, which is to challenge every value, to bring the love of Christ to every situation that you can, but always with our eyes fixed on our ultimate destiny. Take hold of your future. Your purpose is here on earth and your destiny is eternity. Take hold of your future in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's just stand together, shall we? I'd like you to lift up your hands. And this is your purpose you're holding in your hands. 
It's your skills. It's the assets that God's given you. It's the talents that you have. It's the wealth that's sitting in your bank account. It's your ability to earn because that's a ministry too. It's the friendships and the networks that you have. It's the families, the relationships, your neighbours, your friends. It's the job that you do. It's the people you interact with on email. It's the people you wish you'd seen last year but never managed to get to. It's all of who you are in the physical. And let's just ask the Lord to breathe on that. Say, Father, here I am. I'm a vessel. I'm (laughs) just made of clay. You know I'm imperfect. There's lots of things about me which I pray you put right. But here I am, frail that I am, broken that I am, saved not because of what I've done, but because of your goodness and grace and your righteousness to me. And you've forgiven me. You've set me free. You've brought me to life. You raised me up. You put my feet upon a rock. You put a new hymn in my heart, a hymn of praise to you. And Lord, I lift myself to you. I believe there's people here you need to actually physically brace. Now hold your hands together and say, Lord, I embrace this. I'm going to take that course. You know what it is you need to do. You're going to change that job. You're going to write that letter. Uh, you're, going to, you're, going to, you're going to go into parliament. You're going to go into politics. The others of you have decided, actually, I know I need to go into media. I need to influence the world of TV. I need to write a book. I need to, uh, whatever it is, I need to have children. I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to mother, I'm going to father a new generation of people in Christ. I'm going to be, the, uh, I'm going to be an influencer at work. Whatever it is that you feel called to do, just hold your hands together now and say, Father, this is who you have called me to be. I pray that you breathe on this purpose that I, I feel and that you will bring these things to life in the name of Jesus, for your glory, for your kingdom and for eternity in the name of Jesus. Amen.